2: Welcome to The Megan Kelly Show, your home for open, honest, and provocative conversations. Hey everyone, welcome to The Megan Kelly Show. I'm Megan Kelly. Today we're talking about COVID and the vaccine and whether we should be in a lockdown between now and the time you get it. Uh, we've got some really smart and interesting doctors who have been very anti-lockdown, uh, and they have been attacked pretty mercilessly for it, but they're very well qualified to speak about this. Their names are Dr. J. Bhattacharya. He's a professor of medicine at Stanford. And Dr. Martin Kulldorff, who's a professor of medicine at Harvard. And they are part with another uh, doctor who's from Oxford. These are the doctors behind the Great Barrington Declaration. They took a hard look at how we were handling COVID and came up with an alternative. What they suggest essentially is that we protect the most vulnerable from the elderly to those who are immunocompromised for some reason, but that the rest of us go about living our lives. We can be cautious. We can wear masks, uh, social distancing if we feel comfortable doing that. They don't necessarily think that should be mandatory, but they've taken a lot of heat for it. And now with the vaccine in sight, I'm going to ask them whether they still think this is the best method and what is the danger that we are going to go into a lockdown. We're also going to have Dr. David Dowdy. He's an infectious disease epidemiologist at Johns Hopkins, who's kind of on the other side, but we're going to get both perspectives. And I think you're going to find the discussion really interesting. You know, there's been so much hypocrisy out there by these leaders like the whatever, the Chicago mayor, Lori Lightfoot, out there partying with the liberals after Biden and Chuck Schumer doing the same and Nancy Pelosi at the salon and Governor Newsom at French Laundry, along with the San Francisco mayor and the San Jose mayor. Then there was the Austin mayor telling people to stay at home from his vacation spot in Cabo. So really, you kind of want to punch a lot of these people as they tell you to stay home. But instead, we are just going to attack the logic uh, that they are trying to push on us for these endless lockdowns. And uh, so I think you're going to love it. Stay tuned for that. But first, let me talk to you about something flowery, something pretty and lovely called Bloomsy Box. As you know, with travel being what it is and with the COVID ramping up, the cases and so on, a lot of people can't go see their families for Christmas. I'm not going to be able to see my mom for Christmas, which I just hate because she's almost 80 and I love her. Um, and I hate that. It's it's hitting her hard and me hard. But I am going to send an amazing gift to Brighten up her Holidays and mine too, frankly. I am going to send her flowers from Bloomsy Box. She's going to light up when she gets these things. She's going to show it to all her friends. You can always get flowers from Bloomsy Box. Uh, that are so amazing. And you can send them actually, if you love them to somebody every month with a Bloomsy box subscription. So it can be the gift that keeps on giving. If you just want to brighten up a family member's day or month or week, they're better blooms uh, because they're picked, they're grown and picked locally at the farm nearby you just for you. So it winds up being like a personal one of a kind flower gift delivered farm fresh, straight to your loved one. So you know how like some of these flowers die after like three days, certainly here in New York York City, if you get one at the bodega down the street, it's like doesn't smell and it dies within 48 hours at the most. Um, And you always know when someone's bought you those. These are not those. Bloomsy Box will get you actually fresh picked blooms that last and they're gorgeous. They're, They're incredible prices, huge selection of artisan designed arrangements, no hidden fees, no endless upsells and free shipping with a subscription. So how about that? The good news is I got you a special discount if you want to try these out. You know how it's like so hard in time for Christmas and the holidays to buy for some people? Here's your solution: go to bloomsybox.com and enter MK to get 15% off and free shipping. That's promo code MK for 15% off at Bloomsy, B-L-O-O-M-S-Y box.com. And now, Dr. Jay Bhattacharya and Dr. Martin Kohldorf. <laughs> Thank you so much for being here and for helping us walk through this. It's a perfect time to have you since, according to what I read, things are worse than ever with this virus right now. The the headlines tell me that the pandemic is exploding. Uh, The CDC director here says the next few months, this is a quote, will be among the most difficult in in public health history for the United States. Uh, The statistics are that virtually all hospitals in America close to 90% are in hot or red zones. Same is true for nursing homes. U.S. hospitalizations are at an all-time high, 100,000 plus. People are hospitalized, 19,000 in ICUs, 7,000 on ventilators. Those numbers sound bad. And I'm always, I'm always questioning whether these are people trying to scare us or whether we, we genuinely should be scared. Uh, let's start with that one. Uh, I'll start with you, Martin. What do you think?
3: Well, it depends on your age. Uh, one reason we have a lot of mortality is we're not doing a good job protecting the older high-risk people. Uh, there has been effort, uh, federal efforts to send uh, uh, testing to nursing homes, for example, but they're not used universally throughout the country. So uh, we have to do a much better job protecting the nursing homes than we have been doing. Uh, and we do that by testing, uh, frequent testing of our staff who are not already immune because they had COVID. Then we don't have to test them, but every else should be frequently tested. Visitors should be tested uh, because it's important for the residents to have visitors from family and friends. Uh, but it's yes, then we should ask, test them. And if you're positive, you wait a few weeks before you visit them. Uh, we should have less staff rotation in the nursing homes. Uh, so that each resident will uh, interact with as few staff as possible. So these are easy public health measures uh, to implement, uh, but uh, they are not being done universally in the whole country. And that's sad, and that's one reason why we're seeing uh, many high mortality numbers. And we should, of course, also protect older people outside of nursing
2: homes. And the headlines, they never talk about really the age of the people who have died, and it's not that we don't care about the elderly, but it's important to understand what the mortality rate is for people under the age of 70, right? So what is the mortality rate for people under the age of 70?
3: One thing that's important to realize is that anybody can get infected. So the infection can can hit anybody. But in terms of mortality and serious disease, if you look at mortality, there's more than a thousand-fold difference in risk between the old and the young. So for old people, this is more dangerous than an annual influenza. But for children, this is much less dangerous than the annual influenza. And I have an 18-year-old son, and he has minuscule risk, and I'm much more worried when he's driving the car than I am about him getting COVID-19.
4: Mm-hmm. Can I jump in for that? Go ahead, Jay. There's been a whole series of, of studies to look at uh, look the answer to that question. Uh, from around the world the, 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 the estimate is of survival rate for people under 70 is something on the something like ninety nine point nine five percent that is ninety nine point nine five percent of people under seventy who get infected survive. Um, it's much higher as, as uh, Martin says for, for older. Uh, so the survival rate for older people over seventy is something like ninety five percent. Uh, and of course, it goes up with the age of work for, and, and as Martin says, uh, the, for children, it's much less dangerous. Uh, there the are more children that have died this year of the flu in the United States than have died of COVID-19.
2: Now, you guys authored this Great Barrington uh, position paper arguing that we needed to go for herd immunity here in the United States prior to the vaccines being announced and took all sorts of flack for it for the same reason Scott Atlas gets flack uh, for advising something similar at the at the White House. Is that, do you, is the paper and the position on herd immunity still relevant now that we have vaccines coming out soon? What do you think, Jay?
4: So can I just, uh, you know, change the question just slightly and, and the position we never actually, we've never argued for herd immunity as a strategy. Actually, that doesn't make any sense uh, in, the, in, the, in the following way. Uh, the, the only endpoint of this epidemic, no matter what we do, is herd immunity. That's not whether we ad- adopt the current policy or we we change the policy the one when we suggest in the Great Branking question, we just want to focus protection. Um, that, that that's the end point of the epidemic. So in in a sense, our opponents have used this idea of herd immunity to scare people when in fact the current policy we're following is essentially is is aiming at herd immunity. The only alternative to herd immunity is zero COVID, and that's impossible. So so the so the real question is, what do we do in the meantime? What do we do? between now and the end of the epidemic, which is which is herd immunity. Um, the current policy says, let's have these massive lockdowns, which have harmed people. Har- I mean, we can talk extensively about this, and I hope we will, uh, has, has, at both their health, economically, of course, but also their health, and not just people in the United States, but worldwide. I mean, the, the UN estimates that as a result of the lockdowns, uh, there'll be almost 130 million adi- additional people who will be at risk of starvation this year, 80 million children die of poverty worldwide. Uh, and the United States skipped medical treatments uh, that will result in higher death rates from cancer for women and men. So I think uh, it's, the question is, what do we do now, not what the endpoint of the epidemic is? Herd immunity is the endpoint of the epidemic. The current mm-hmm. policy of the lockdown is hurting many, many, many people, in many ways, creating more death, uh, and suffering for uh, for people around the world uh, from, uh, from both from non-COVID and e- e- sources. And ironically, it's also damaging COVID. We I think we would have less death. The, the the policy we put forward in that 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 declaration, that Great Barrington declaration, was a focused protection. The idea is, and, and Martin, you heard it in Martin uh, when he spoke. The idea is to to devote overwhelming resources to protect the elderly. That was the, that's the declaration, and the and other people with it with the chronic disease. So I'll give you an example of where we failed in this policy, where we failed with our current policy. Uh, we have workers. Let's like say you're 64 year old diabetic, and you and you happen to work at at uh, a grocery store. While well, you're deemed essential. And there's absolutely no protection for you. We ask you to go out and, and, and be exposed to the virus because you're a, a, an essential worker. And we say, look, uh, you should just, you, you're gonna be forced to take that risk. Well, that's partly why we have this high mortality. We haven't given thought to who's actually vulnerable and work to protect them. Instead, we've said uh, a, a class of workers as, is non-essential, essentially meaning that they're rich enough so that they can, they can be served by people who, have, who we ask to go take the risk of the virus. Um, the, the current policy is one of, of enormous inequality, and I think that's that's, that's mainly what's driven our, our thinking in the Great Banks Declaration. Let's change the mm-hmm. policy to follow the science, and the science says we know who's vulnerable, older people, people with certain chronic conditions. Let's think creatively about how to protect them, and for the rest of the, for the population, the lockdowns are way more harmful. Both to health and 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 psychological health and other and other 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 aspects of life.
2: Is that still relevant now that we have the? Because you know it feels like we can see the end that the vaccines. They say by May we should all not all but virtually all have it, have the vaccine. They're going to start with the most vulnerable, the elderly. Well, the, the first responders get it first. And so, given that, should we be thinking about this? Should we should we still be trying to avoid lockdowns?
4: Absolutely, because as I said, the lockdowns have been harmful to the health of. Of non-vulnerable people, on net, it's the lockdowns are harming. I'm going to give you, let me give you one other number. Uh, in June this year, one in four young adults, eighteen to twenty-four, seriously considered suicide. One in mm-hmm. four. Uh, you can see any. Everyone who knows anybody in, in, in the United States, actually anywhere in the world, understands the psychological. Uh, damage caused by these lockdowns, the isolation, the stress. um, It's not surprising that we see numbers like this. Uh, You asked about the vaccine. The vaccine is actually a perfect mechanism for for focus protection. Uh, The CDC just said that they're going to prioritize elderly people for the vaccine. That is exactly the right strategy. Use the vaccine to protect people who are, we know, to be at high risk. And for the rest of the population, the lockdowns are more harmful than the disease.
2: Mm. So in other words, you feel like now more than ever your strategy makes sense because we're about to vaccinate the most vulnerable, thus protecting them and and more justification for getting the young people, the healthy people back out there living their lives.
4: Yeah, I mean that's exactly right. I mean, I I, I mean, I I personally have an eighty year old mother uh, who I I I've told she needs to isolate because i don't want her to get sick because if she would be at high risk if she were to get sick Uh, i have uh, uh, a 19 year old uh, uh, daughter 13 and 15 year old sons i want them to live their lives that we they've they've been harmed by this this lockdown in ways that are impossible to replace or fix Uh, i personally i'm 52 i i would uh I mean, I, my risk is you know moderate. I, so, so, but I would will willingly take the risk of beat so I could go teach him uh, in in person again because uh, I I like I like seeing my students. We have to understand the risk is very very different and and react appropriately. You started the, 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 the conversation again uh, with a question about panic and and, uh, and fear. We shouldn't be living in panic and fear. We should be thinking about what the risks actually are and 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 live reasonably on the in the face of them.
2: Mm hmm. But we seem to be getting back to that. You've got the California governor, the New York governor issuing shutdown orders. You've got um, L.A. issuing some some pretty stern stay at home orders, you know, really scaring people about what's going to happen if they go out. Um, and more and more, we're seeing sort of state after state start to crack down as the numbers go up. And th- the question is whether we should be listening, whether they should be doing that, whether we should be listening. As the CDC tells everyone, stay at home. Don't travel for Christmas. Again, we're hearing we need to, quote, bend the curve. So do do you guys agree with that, Martin? Uh,
3: we're doing exactly the same mistake as we did in the spring, and which led to far too many deaths uh, of COVID-19. And it's doing the opposite of what we should do. So in many places, the schools are closed, even though the COVID-19 poses no risk to the children, um, as well as uh, teachers don't having any higher risk than other professions by being teachers. So they're not at high risk either. So we're really hurting the kids here by keeping the schools closed. At the same time, we are not uh, properly protecting uh, uh, older people in nursing homes, for example. So why are we testing children in schools and university colleges who don't need to be testing? There's no public health reason for that. Uh, at the same time as uh, we are not doing proper testing in all the nursing homes. So in some nursing homes, so so one thing that Scott Atlas has done very good during his uh, short tenure in the White House was to really push better testing for old people so that the nursing home had access to that. And that's being done in some parts of the country, like Florida, for example. But the other places that are still not testing nursing home staff frequently, and they should be tested now during the height of transmission uh, at least three times a week and maybe more.
2: You don't think the goal should be close the restaurants, close the bars, don't travel, don't go to college, don't mingle, because it, it even getting COVID is really not that scary a proposition for the vast majority of people. And even with a vaccine on the horizon, people don't need to be so freaked out about the possibility of getting it unless they're in the high risk group.
3: Correct. So we should put all the resources to protect those older people which we're not doing properly. So uh, that's very, very unfortunate. And we have to do a better job protecting them. Instead, we are we are putting the resources on protecting people who don't need to protect them, like school children. They need education, not for, just for educational needs, but also for physical health, mental health, and uh, social development. And that's long-term damage that we're doing to our children. And we should never, as a country, put the burden Uh, on children who are not at risk here we should always uh, take care of our children and let them go to school and let them live normal lives in sweden they kept the schools open during the spring for ages 1 to 15 uh, and there were 8.1.8 million children in this age group and exactly zero uh, died from covid-19 and there were only a few hospitalizations among children so we should not hurt the children that we're doing right now by closing the schools
2: You know what they say. They say, but the children will bring the infection, they'll bring the virus home to an elderly grandparent or someone else that they're near. And so what we've been told is the children have to be making this sacrifice for older people in the community. What do you think of that?
3: Uh, I don't think any old person wants their grandchildren to make such a sacrifice And we are, it is possible to protect uh, old people. Uh, Also, the old people are not so much at risk from the children. We know that from studies, they are at risk from working age adults. That's the ones who are giving them uh, COVID. So they need to be protected from working age adults. Uh, And we can do that by not having them go to the grocery stores to buy food, for example. Uh, I see old people in the grocery stores and they should not be there uh mm-hmm. they should still be see friends and family because that's important preferably outdoors but if not that possible their friends and family should be tested uh, but uh, they older people should not be out mingling in crowds
2: what about the schools because the ones that are open thankfully um still have really strict restrictions in place i mean the kids i've got three little kids and and i know just from their schools there is a six foot distancing required for every child. M- my daughter, she's not allowed to speak during lunch that the children may not speak because they're worried about air coming out of their mouth and projecting onto other children. So they have to they put on a movie. Um, the, all the kids, if they have a recess, they have to wear their masks as they run around for P.E., which our pediatrician said could raise some some health issues that he doesn't like you know we're grateful that they're in school but i do worry about a the psychological scare to kids and having to behave like this and b whether any of this is really necessary to they those those restrictions i just mentioned what do you think jay
4: i think uh the the restrictions on our school kids are are I mean, I, I don't I have the language to express how how uh, how unhappy I am about them. There was a recent study done, uh, published in the Journal of the American Medical Association Open Network, which is a prominent medical journal, estimated that that the schooling loss for our kids uh, just from the the pa, the, the, the spring, um, if we with you know with with the the cutting down of in person learning, will lead to five and a half million lost life years for our kids, mm-hmm. uh, because you know, you miss school, you think that's just a small thing, but it's not. It has knock-on consequences through the whole rest of your life. Uh, you know, people make decisions based on what they've learned in school and, and that has consequences for their health. Less well-educated kids lead sicker, shorter lives. Five and a half million that we we've, we've taken from our kids for. Uh, and you ask the second part of your questions are important too. Like, what are we getting for it? Well, the kids don't pass the disease on very efficiently for reasons we don't understand. But but we, we know for an absolute fact from a vast literature, uh, kids are not the super spreaders that 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 they've been made they to be in, in the press. Uh, they, in fact, they are not the. They they are much more likely. To get the disease from from parents and others than, than they are to spread the disease to the teachers, for instance. Our schools should be open. Um, as, as Martin said, uh, the, the schools are open in much of the world uh, through much of the epidemic. France has kept its schools open despite the rise in cases on the basis of this very strong scientific evidence um, that it's safe. And as far as like the, the kinds of restrictions you're talking about, that doesn't sound like... I mean, we we, we school also, it's not just about education. It's about socialization, learning skills to interact with people. Instead, we're, we're, we're creating this environment, even in schools that are open up for in-person learning, of fear. Um, I mean, we should be talking to kids, we should be teaching our kids the way we normally teach our kids rather than, I mean, even better than we normally teach, I think. Um, but mm-hmm. but uh, but certainly not the kind of environment you're talking about. I think that is not, not warranted given what we know from the scientific evidence.
3: Yeah, those uh, restrictions are nonsense and there's absolutely no public health rationale for them. And we have to look at it scientifically. And again, we to do that, we need to look at Sweden again who kept the schools open in the spring, during the height of the pandemic, and where there was no death, that was accomplished by having no testing in the schools. No children was tested. There were no masks. There were no social distancing. The two things they did was, when a child is sick, has symptoms like a cough or a runny nose, they were told to be home. Um, and there was no uh, citywide or like schoolwide big gatherings, like in the cafeteria with hundreds of kids. The kids stayed with their twenty twenty-five people in the classrooms. So that's what Sweden did without any of those restrictions. And it did perfectly fine with zero deaths among the children. So these restrictions are not based on public health. They are based on politics.
2: Yeah. And fear, like the fear, uh, forgive yes. the term, but people call it COVID porn, you know, where people just, they, they play up the newspapers, play up the number of deaths without context, how the, num- the infection rate without context. And people believe that this is... This is potentially deadly for everyone uh, who gets it. Meanwhile, it's virtually not at all for for children. There's only been a handful of cases, and they've been really rare. And there's still questions, as I understand, about whether they really are COVID-related. More with Jane Martin in just one minute. But first, the holiday season is about celebrating and spreading joy to those we love, our friends, family, neighbors, and even our pets. That amount of joy can require a lot of online holiday shopping. Have you been doing it? Me too. And the more you do it online, like gift giving, banking, browsing, the more you potentially expose your personal information, which makes you more vulnerable to cyber criminals. Yes, you need to think about Santa and cyber criminals at the same time. Now is the time to think about your cybersecurity with all of the all-in-one protection of Norton 360 with LifeLock that's available to you. This is the easy way to keep your busy digital life safer in one easy place. You can get powerful protection for your devices, like your laptops, your tablets, your phones, a VPN for your online privacy, and LifeLock identity theft protection that alerts you to potential identity threats. No one can prevent every cybercrime and every identity theft or monitor every single transaction at all businesses. But Norton 360 with LifeLock gives you a running chance. They can help keep your holidays happy with powerful protection against cybercriminals. Save 25% or more off your first year at norton.com mk. That's norton.com mk to save 25% off. Talk about Sweden. Is is your approach the same? The, your recommended approach, this sort of focus protection, the same as what Sweden did?
3: It's not exactly the same because Sweden, uh, as many other countries, has not done a good enough job protecting the old people. Uh, so in that sense, it's not the same. On the other hand, it is the same in the sense that schools should be open like they were in Sweden and they still are uh, open in Sweden the, uh, for this age group. So in that sense, it's the same.
2: But I know Sweden's getting criticized and I never know what to believe because I know the mainstream media is rooting against Sweden. I mean, they just are. They have a, a dog in this hunt, weirdly. And so every report I get out of them about the Sweden numbers is it's failing, it's failing, it's failing. And their numbers are much higher than these other Nordic countries that had more restrictive approaches and lockdowns. And I guess Sweden itself has admitted that it should have done more to protect the elderly in sort of these long term care facilities, which I think everyone is seeing. But what do you think? Has Sweden been a successful experiment?
3: Well, I don't think it's an experiment. I think the lockdowns are an, uh, an unsuccessful experiment. But Norway also didn't have much lockdown. So it's in the sense that they are very similar to Sweden. And in Sweden, it's Stockholm that had high rates where the rest of Sweden has been pretty low and if we look at it now, Sweden had more cases than some other European countries in the spring not as not as bad as uh, New York, New Jersey, Massachusetts, and Connecticut, much less than that, but they had higher rates than many other European countries but then now in the fall it's instead lower than many other most other European countries mm-hmm. so what what the lockdown did in the spring was sort of in certain places, we sort of postponing the problem until now in the fall.
4: Actually, can I return to that uh, about the lockdown and, uh, and, yep. and the deaths that are associated with the lockdown? And one of the things that we realize about the lockdown is that it, the economic dislocation caused by it actually creates danger, right? So, so many young people lose their jobs, go back, live at home with older, o- older parents or even grandparents now you've created this danger of this mixed environment where the young person gets sick, they're, they're probably going to be fine, uh, but they might pass the, 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 the disease on to an older person because they're living in close proximity. Uh, we close universities and send, people, send, send our kids home to live with their, with their older parents. Again, you've created this sort of intergenerational mixing that otherwise wouldn't be taking place. Um, these lockdowns, it's, they themselves create disease spread risk. Exactly where you don't want it, it's because they're untargeted and naive about the who's actually at danger that that uh, I think we're we're really opposed to it. I mean It doesn't mm-hmm. make sense from an epidemiologic point of view to to create that kind of mixing when in just normal course of life, you wouldn't have it.
2: It's crazy how strict they've been on college students. some Some college students have been expelled from their universities because they were found not socially distancing properly or not quarantining exactly the right number of days. I mean, they are treating these guys like they have contracted the plague and have placed the entire community at great risk of death if they violate any of these rules, which, as you point out, may not even be based in science. Why is that? Is that a media creation? What do you guys think, having studied it?
4: I mean, I think it's it's the result of fear and 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 uh, uh, a lack of, of of creative thinking about what what does work and what doesn't work. I mean, I think for for college students, I completely agree with you. It's, it is absolutely uh, what what we've done is just uh, an enormous mistake. Public health should never create a situation where we shame people. It should never create a situation where we we guilt people who be who, who get sick. We should provide be providing compassionate care to people like like that. Give people good tools to make good choices, not not create this atmosphere of shame and recrimination. Um, mm-hmm. I mean, I, I think back to an early story from the epidemic, uh, at, at the, I think it was the Air Force Academy, where they uh, they sent home most of the classes, and they kept the seniors, and but basically, Required the seniors to 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 uh, in, in, to live in basically solitary confinement more or less during the spring. Whether you know the food would be delivered to them, but they really just interact with people via Zoom and not much else. Uh, two of those two of those seniors committed suicide. Right, the psychological stress from that kind of isolation, from the recrimination of if you violate the rule, you're you're guilty of of harming so many people. All of that is leads to enormous psychological stress. I know there's suicides in in universities now uh, that that are happening around the country because of these because of these rules. The lockdowns in these in these uh, uh, these universities are not actually helping our students, and it's not actually helping disease control. We we should instead be giving our students good uh, good information about how to protect themselves and others, uh, and but for so the most part, the main thing is to not interact with older people if they believe if they if they actually are at, at uh, you know with with symptoms with other other kinds of conditions that they might make them think that they are, are, are have the disease. Give testing for them so that that they you know uh, the the testing actually is an interesting thing too. We 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 link these tests to to public health reporting, so all of a sudden now you get a test to see if I can go visit my grandma. Um, now it's a public event if i if i if i'm positive i'm going to get a two-week quarantine i'm not a lot of people think to themselves well do i really want to risk a two-week quarantine i think i'll just go visit grandma without a test um mm-hmm. we should be a, allowing people to to privately get tested and then they'll, they'll make let them make good decisions i mean they don't want to they don't want to infect grandma i don't want my, my mom infected if i if i can te- ch- take a test privately you know i'm positive i won't go visit her
2: that's a really good point because i can tell you um just in our community that we go to over the summer in New Jersey, we actually had a very fortunate summer where it seemed the infection rate in our community was very low. We had a day camp open for the kids. But one college guy got COVID and had no symptoms whatsoever throughout his entire time with COVID, but he just had the good fortune of getting tested and saw that he had it. So, you know, he left and quarantined. But the shame the shame that was, pla- and this kid did everything right. He found out a friend had tested positive. He went, he got tested. He had it. He quarantined immediately. But I mean, he was outed. People somehow found a way of looking at him like he'd done something irresponsible. And it, it's, it became like a scarlet letter. And and of course, everyone else in the community is like, well, I'm not saying if I get it, like I, I'm just going to go underground for two weeks or, you know there has still been a shame attached to it as though you've done something wrong, if you get it.
4: Yeah, I mean, it's a virus. Uh, we, we have very incomplete measures available to protect ourselves from it. We shouldn't be shaming people who happen to get it. I mean, you could you can take all the measures you like and, and you, you might still get it. I mean, I thought we'd learned from the HIV epidemic uh, in public health to not shame, of, of, rather to provide resources and care for people who get sick. I mean, it's, it's an, an enormous step backwards. And Scarlet Letter, that's exactly the right I mean, I've... I've often thought about this as like the scarlet sea, right? Oh, I got the I, mm-hmm. I got the coronavirus. It's a it's an enormous mistake, Megan. And I, and I think it's it's a mistake that we uh in, in public health are going to regret because it's hard to unring that bell.
2: Just to round back to the discussion on schools, here in New York City, our mayor, who in whom no one has any faith, he closed the schools and then after public pressure reared its head, he said, "Okay, I'll open up the elementary schools." And meantime, it seems like all the data is the schools are safe and you can open them up. But but a lot of these officials are drawing a line between elementary schools, lower schools and middle school and high school. And to your point about suicide rates and depression, I mean, who is is at greater risk of depression than young teenage boys in particular, but also girls? So I worry about the high schoolers and the middle schoolers. They they need socialization and connection probably even more than the littles. And they've been, like, I, I know a lot of friends who have teenagers who are really sullen, withdrawn, depressed at not having seen their friends. So is there something to this distinction these officials are drawing between the littles and the middle school and high school? I
3: think school should be open for uh, all children. Uh, as you say, that is, is very important for high school kids with the socializations. I mean, the only, the distinction is that a small child uh, can need some kind of care by an adult. So if the chi- if the parents are working, then they need to go with the grandparent, and that's not not uh, the best uh, solution. While a teenage can stay at home alone, so that's the only sort of logistic restriction. But uh, you're right that uh, this is uh, uh, very tragic for uh, for uh, teenagers and high school students as well as university students. So we should open immediately all schools for in person teaching.
2: Okay, let's talk about the vaccines because. Uh, You tell me, but to me, these seem like miracles. I mean, 95% effective, at least three companies so far saying they've got it. Pfizer, Moderna, AstraZeneca, uh, you know, millions and millions of doses available this month, December, we assume, if they get approved here in the United States, the way we've seen in Britain. It seems wonderful. (laughs) I, I, I only hope it's true. Are you guys as optimistic about the vaccines? I'll ask you that one, Martin.
3: So the scientists have done a, a, fantastic, a fantastic job developing vaccines. So uh, they need, they deserve a big feather in the hat for doing that. Uh, what we thought, So far, we've only seen the press releases for the companies. Uh, and for Pfizer, for example, which I think was just approved in the UK, we still haven't seen the actual data. But on uh, December 8th, FDA is planning to release that data. So that's when we really know what is the efficacy and safety of this uh, vaccine, and that's when we can sort of judge it how good it is, and for what mm-hmm. uh, for what groups uh, it might be uh, more have more efficacy versus less efficacy.
2: Yeah, AstraZeneca is saying that it may be able to produce 200 million doses worldwide by the end of 2020. So that would be, I mean. That's not just America, of course, but that would be spectacular. And then the other two are saying that, I guess, um, 40 million doses, so 20 million people could be helped by the end of December. Uh, Because I I actually didn't realize this, but you have to have two shots, whether you get the Pfizer or the Moderna or or the AstraZeneca vaccine. Uh, Johnson & Johnson is reportedly testing a one-dose vaccine. The the one, especially from Pfizer, requires super, super cold storage at something like minus 90 Fahrenheit temperature, so it's a little inconvenient. Um, Johnson and Johnson is working on one that doesn't require that Mod- Moderna doesn't require as much of the, the cold. So the, if everyone's sort of come up with something that's slightly different. But let's start with this. Do you believe that they're going to be safe? And would you take it? What do you think, Jay?
4: I mean, I think uh, the as Martin said, we, we do need to wait for the safety data to, to be publicly released so that uh, you know folks can scrutinize them carefully. I would absolutely tell my mom to take it first because she's at the highest risk. I, I personally probably would take it um, again, depending on what the the safety data show, because my my risk is, is moderate. Um, but uh, for my kids, I think that the 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 vaccine. I, well, again, we we'll have to look at the safety data. If they're, they're they're not, I wouldn't prioritize children for the vaccine. It's not like Other uh, like a disease like the measles, where kids, uh, you know, where the vaccine for kids really is is a is is, it makes much better sense than actually getting measles, which would be deadly. Um, Here for kids, it's much lower risk. For to get COVID. They get mul- much milder disease and die at lower rates. More people, more kids have died of the flu this year than COVID. So I think uh, for mm-hmm. kids, I think it's a completely different question. So this, that we have to look at the safety data, but the standard for the safety data that we hold for children, uh, we should expect a much, much, much lower serious adverse event risk for children before we require children to have it. I, and I also they, they haven't think we tested missed, it on children either. Yeah, exactly. I mean, it's, it's going to be... So I think for that, I, I think um, some folks have, have argued that we should make the vaccine mandatory. And I think I'm, I'm, I'm very firmly against that. I think here what we have to do is we have to understand who's at risk. We shouldn't be asking people I mean, mostly when we ask people to take vaccines, it's because it's good for you to take the vaccine, right? We, we say, uh, you know, you, you take a measles, mumps, and rubella for your kids because it's good for your kids to have that shot because measles, mumps, and rubella are terrible diseases if, it were, if their kids were to get it. We shouldn't be asking people to take a vaccine if it's on net bad for them. So for my mom, 80 years old, she should take it absolutely i mean assuming that the the, the data come out the way I, I anticipate because it's it's uh it's better for her to have the vaccine than than uh than COVID. much better again assuming the data come out the way we anticipate for me it's it's, it's a closer closer thing and for my kids it's not a close thing I, I i think based on uh based on what i've seen
2: that that's kind of a scary thought because if they make it mandatory and we know that they haven't tested these vaccines on children uh, given the ethical concerns of doing that, I guess one of the companies is starting to test kids over 12, but the the littles have not been tested at all, nor have pregnant women. Um, and if these schools in particular say it's mandatory, as they do with a lot of these vaccines, for your kid to get the vaccine before he or she can return, parents are in a bit of a pickle there. All right, because we don't have the data to assess is it safe and is it worth it. Martin
4: should probably answer this because he's, uh, he's one of the world's experts on vaccine safety. But it's um, but it, it's this is one of these things where the data should drive our decision making. And as far as making it mandatory, I've even seen proposals to say, look, unless you unless you're vaccinated, you should you, you should not be able to work. Uh, you know, you should like I think those are enormous mistakes. Uh, both from a public health perspective and based on what the what the what I anticipate the vaccine will show in the science.
2: What do you think, Martin? Would you get the vaccine, and and do you think that that it should be mandatory for anyone, children or otherwise?
3: No, I don't think it should be mandatory for anyone except possibly for uh, hospital and uh, nursing home workers. Uh, if they want to work in such a setting, I think it's reasonable to have it mandatory for them, but not for anybody else. And I think it has to do with the trust uh, in public health. So these lockdowns have created a huge problem that we're going to live with for many years now, with the distrust. Uh, between the public and the public health officials. And I fully understand the rational... uh, It's very rational, I think, for the public to distrust the public health officials after this public health uh, disaster. But the other issue is that public health officials do not trust the public. And that is a serious problem in public health. If you want to do successfully in public health, you have to trust the public. Otherwise, you're going to fail. And Mandating vaccines means you're not trusting the public and then the Mm -hmm. public is not going to trust the public health officials and there will be less vaccinations. Mm -hmm. There will be more people refusing it.
2: We've already seen some of that in the way people are reacting to Dr. Fauci. You know, it's I think he's universally beloved by most Democrats and he's not as beloved by the other half of the country, notwithstanding the fact that he's one of Times People of the Year. What do you think of Dr. Fauci and how he's handled this? He's very against the Great Barrington Project, I I know, Martin. So uh, Dr. Fauci is
3: is an esteemed immunologist, but in infectious diseases, there are different areas of expertise. So if you develop a vaccine, you have to know about virology and immunology, for example. If you're going to treat patients, you have to to know how to treat people, what are the medications to use for infectious diseases. Uh, But if you want to decide how to deal with... uh, pandemic at the population level, then you need to know about infectious disease outbreaks uh, and how they operate in society and how it spread from person to person, sort of the population dynamics. And you need to know the infectious disease epidemiology. And that's something that I have been studying uh, for for many decades, but it's not an area of expertise of Dr. Fauci. So it's surprising to me that he uh, makes such statements on the epidemiology. Uh, Of the pandemic, which, uh, uh, to be honest, uh, he has made a number of uh, erroneous statements on on this aspect. But Mm -hmm. uh, so that also that's that reduces the trust in public health again when people hear that. And then they realize that that was wrong.
4: I mean, I think on the on the Great Barrington Declaration in particular, I think he's he's uh, just doesn't understand it. I mean, he's he said he's characterized it as a, a strategy of letting it rip, and you can hear from our conversation that is very, very far from what we're proposing to do. We do not want to let the virus rip through the population. That is that that's just a complete mischaracterization. And uh, I mean, in a way, it makes me really sad because I do respect him uh, as as an as a as a, uh, uh, you know, a leader in immunology and and in, in, uh, and and uh, so to hear him mischaracterize these ideas which are, are, are involved protecting vulnerable people as, uh, and thinking carefully about the harms of the lockdown. Um, and what that implies for right policy is, is just it, it, it's, I think it's just a great mistake on his part. And as Martin says, mm-hmm. it, it sort of undermines trust in public health. Actually, one thing I've noticed in his thinking is that he, he really does seem to be blind to the harms of the lockdown. The, I mean, we've talked about the de- depression. We've talked about uh, starvation in, 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 in developing countries as a consequence of the, the economic damage from the lockdown. We, talked about, we haven't talked so much, but, the, but there's also medical damage from people delaying um, cancer care from, from, because uh, people are more scared of COVID than cancer. I, I mean, I think all of these harms should enter into our policy calculus. And uh, when Dr. Fauci talks, I, I never hear him thinking about those harms in a way that's meaningful.
2: Mm-hmm. No, what what's, what's happened between him and the media is just more shaming of anybody who pushes back against the narrative that the only thing we need to be focused on is curbing the spread of this virus. And, you know, even if that costs millions of people their jobs, their businesses, their careers, the ability to put food on their tables. I mean, the reports have been totally heartbreaking of what the lockdowns have done when there really are questions, you know, we were told last, last March, two weeks to bend the curve and the, and the American public did it. They did as they were told. And now here we are in December and they're saying the same thing, the CDC, we need to bend the curve. Meanwhile, people's lives have been ruined. They've been ruined. And when somebody like you guys comes forward and says, here's a possible other approach that takes both problems into consideration, what do we see more shame same as they've dumped on Scott Atlas who I think has been really brave in all of this shame he's been they describe him as disgraced he he's at your he's at your institution stanford j right i mean what do you think about that what, how they've responded to anybody who pushes back against the fauci narrative like you guys like scott
4: i mean i think the the uh, the the response of the scientific community i mean in one sense has been amazing as we talked about it for the vaccine uh, but in, in another sense it's been utterly shameful uh, i think we've seen it in a way that i never anticipated seeing you know i've been a have been uh, a scientist for in medical school for 20 years on the faculty uh, i i never thought i would see the day where there would be active measures to try to suppress uh, a, a, a a point of view in a scientific discussion, um, the way that they've done with with Dr. Atlas, um, and, and I think uh, I, I think for science we're going to have to think carefully about how really to go forward. Uh, we've we've uh, there's another uh, uh, very famous professor at my institution, Dr. John Ioannidis. He's he's made YouTube videos uh, talking about the pandemic that have been censored, removed off. You know, one of the mm-hmm. top scientists in the world thinking about the most uh, important problem in public health and those views are censored um you can't have science when uh people can't talk openly about the disagreements about over over certain over important facts um you just it's not science it's just you know it's just one view uh dominating with absolutely no possibility of of being questioned that's not Mm -hmm. science that's that's something else
2: We're seeing it more and more. And not just when it comes to COVID, Um, you know, when it comes to transgender identification and things like that, the the rejection of science in in favor of what's considered to be politically correct is really getting dangerous. A couple of questions before I let you go. They say they don't know whether these vaccines stop the virus from infecting you or whether they just stop you from experiencing the virus. You don't get any symptoms. And if it's if you have the virus and you're still shedding the virus, even though you may not be suffering from the virus, then the vaccine, they're saying, is potentially less uh, exciting <laughs> than, than the other way. So, n- number one, do you think that uh, that means we're farther away from being able to take off these masks and stop socially distancing? And number two, either way, when do you think we're going to be able to take off these masks and stop socially distancing? Martin?
3: Uh, so it's true that we don't know those things about the vaccines yet, and also uh, they have been evaluated based on uh, sim- symptoms rather than mortality, for example. So there's a lot left to learn about these vaccines uh, uh, in the in the coming months and years. But uh, what is important is, as long as there are, uh, there's some efficacy and some uh, and, and good safety, they can be used as part of a uh focus protection strategy where we protect older people. Uh, whether it's because we are protecting the old people, but when they get vaccinated, or whether we protect them by having the uh, nursing home staff and healthcare personnel being uh, protected. Now, in terms of the social distancing, uh, we should end them immediately. Uh, no matter how good uh, uh, the vaccines are, uh, because of all the damage they are causing on uh, on uh, collateral damage they are causing on public health. Uh, with uh, with the falling uh, uh, child immunization rates, uh, worse cardiovascular disease outcomes, worse cancer outcomes, worse diabetes care, uh, and the and the uh, deteriorating mental health, we have to do think about that collateral damage and end the lockdowns for children and young people.
2: And Martin, do we do we have any idea how wh- how long the immunity will last, and whether this will be something we need to get annually? You know, like the flu vaccine. Uh,
3: from the vaccine, we do not know, uh, but we should not compare it to the influenza vaccine because the, the influenza comes with a new strain each year. So there's no reason to believe that uh, coronavirus will uh, behave in the same manner. But we don't know if, if, uh, if we need, for example, a booster shot uh, five, ten years from now from the vaccine. That we don't know. Uh, the natural immunity, we know there's good natural immunity because there's been very few uh, reinfections. But also, we mm-hmm. don't know if that lasts uh, for a lifetime or probably not. But even if it doesn't, then when you get it a uh, second time, maybe 10, 15, 20 years down the road, you would expect it to be milder uh, because you still have some, some uh, uh, help from the immune system, even though you might still get it a second time.
2: So just around round back, exit question for both of you. What's your prediction on when we get back to normal, to something resembling very closely, normal. Jay?
4: I mean, I think if we use the vaccine correctly, we could get back to normal within two months, right? So if we have, uh, let's say, uh, 50 million people vaccinated, uh, who are at the highest risk, at that point, we can open society up, right? uh, And and because the logic is the harms from the lockdown to the rest of society is worse than the disease. Um, And the people who are vaccinated are protected. I think we could get back to normal in two months. If we, if we continue to follow this policy we're currently following of lockdown after lockdown after lockdown, it, we will we'll be doing this for another year or two. Mm.
3: I wow. agree with that. Schools should open immediately. But then uh, after the older people have been vaccinated and their caretakers, then the older people can also go back to normal, hopefully in about a couple of months.
2: I wonder it's one of the questions that we don't have an answer to about how the presidential election is gonna play in here. if Trump had won you know when when the when the race was still in front of us, the election was still in front of us, um there was definitely a disincentive for some of these democratic governors to ease up on on the fear factor and now that it's looks like it's Biden, um uh, maybe they will. Maybe they'll get closer to reality and listen to guys like you about the damaging effect of these lockdowns and and finding a way forward. Uh, I don't know. They may be too addicted to the porn. (laughs) Um, listen, I really appreciate your honesty and your scientific approach. It's, it's been important for people like me who are genuine truth seekers and not trying to, you know, maneuver anything with an agenda on this. I, I really just want to know the truth. So thank you for your courage in the face of a lot of pushback. I appreciate it.
4: Thank you for having us, Megan.
2: Our thanks to Jay and Martin, a lot of brain power on the show today. Up next, Dr. David Dowdy joins us. He's from Johns Hopkins. He has a bit of a different take, but you'll find it interesting where they overlap and agree. We got you covered on COVID and what's about to come. But first, I want to talk to you about Legacy Box. This is a safe and affordable way to digitally preserve all your home movies and photos that are currently trapped on dated formats like VHS or film or Betamax. <laughs> are you one of those people? What products have you been eyeing with the hope that they would go on sale during Black Friday or Cyber Monday? Did Legacy Box make your short list? Well, it should have. Is there anyone on your list who's difficult to shop for? Yes, 100%. Now's the time to go to Legacy Box. It's the perfect gift for the pickiest of people. This is what you should do. You've got to call them up or go online, get them to send you the Legacy Box. When you're, you know, you got a minute, you fill it with the pictures or the videotapes or the slides that you want digitized and then they will send it back to you, you see, and then you can reclaim all the priceless footage that you haven't been able to see in years. What a nice gift that would make. Think about it like your mom or I don't know, your brother who wants to see a slide photos from when he went on that safari. It couldn't be simpler. You use their kit to safely send the moments in that you want preserved. Their team does it all by hand, creating a digital archive. And then you receive your new copies stored in the cloud or a thumb drive or a DVD along with your all of your originals. They don't keep those. With their tracking system, you can monitor every single step of the process. You always know where your originals are and who's messing with them. And uh, just know you're in good company. Because over the past 10 years, Legacy Box has helped close to 1 million families restore and protect their most cherished moments. This is the best deal of the year, folks. Go to LegacyBox.com to take advantage of this limited time offer and get 60% off the best deal of the year. This exclusive offer will not last long, so order the kit now, send it in whenever you're ready, but don't delay. This is a sale to remember. Legacybox.com MK to save 60% off while supplies last. That's a good one. All right, now, before we get to Dr. Dowdy, we're going to bring to you a feature that we call You Can't Say That, and you know why, because we live in America now where everything must be offensive. No one, as it turns out, is immune from being silenced by the wokesters on the far left, not even liberal icon Barack Obama. Yes, it's true. So in a recent Snapchat interview on his endless book tour, uh, the former president was asked about the very unpopular policy of, quote, defunding the police, right? Which even Al Sharpton has ripped as making no sense. And even places like Minneapolis that actually tried to enact it uh, promptly had to reverse their policies because a lot of people were getting hurt. (laughs) right? But some people refuse to listen. Nonetheless, here's what Barack Obama had to say about it.
4: You can use a snappy slogan like defund the police, but, you know, you've lost a big audience the minute you say it, which makes it a lot less likely that you're actually going to get the changes you want done. The key is deciding, do you want to actually get something done or do you want to feel good among the people you already agree with?
2: Sounds pretty accurate to me. Uh, But for the woke left, this is unacceptable. The squad, you know, the squad, They started tweeting about it. And then the media, of course, jumped in with their pushback. The most ridiculous had to be from Jezebel, which you could say pretty much every day about Jezebel and their reaction to everything, which actually wrote a column titled, Hey, Obama, some people actually do want to defund the police, but it was their tweet about the story that was the best. They they actually tweeted out the following. Now we're supposed to take unsolicited slogan edits from a man whose most memorable presidential campaign slogans were the wildly creative zingers change. And yes, we can. Sure. Okay, so the Jezebel folks know better than Obama what kind of slogans work in motivating the American people, right? The most popular Democratic politician in decades. He won the presidency twice by wide margins, but Jezebel knows better. And they're, they're mad. They're mad at Barack Obama. Let's see how that works out. So Barack Obama, who dared to say defund the police is a stupid slogan. Okay, that's my editorializing, but he did say it was unpopular. It was self-defeating. Um, just so you know, Barack Obama, you can't say that. Oh, wait, this is America. Dr. David Dowdy, thank you so much for being here. Okay, so let's talk about this notion. What, what the great Barrington doctors are saying right now is that we they're not really pushing exactly for herd immunity, but what they're saying is what we don't want is another lockdown. The the costs are too high and the benefits are too low. And that what we really need to focus on, including over the next six months as the vaccine rolls out, is protecting the elderly, uh, the first you know responders, frontline workers and people who are immunocompromised in some way. And that the rest of us, people under the age of 60, people who are well, should go about living our lives the way we want. Uh, and the, the combination of those two things, as we vaccinate the people who are most at risk, plus the rest of us just out there living our lives is what will give us true herd immunity in the most helpful and healthy way. What do you think?
5: Well, uh, thanks again for, for having me, Megan. And, uh, I think this is a a great discussion. Um, I, I think that many of us are in agreement with the, the idea that what we don't want are, are more lockdowns. And also that the people most in need of protection are those at the greatest risk of, um, of getting very sick and, and dying of this disease, including um, the elderly and those with other um, immunocompromising conditions. So I think there's no disagreement there. Um, I think that that the one point of, of disagreement is is how to, to best go about protecting those that are the most vulnerable um and i would argue that it's important to keep the transmission levels of this virus um at a manageable level um in order to prevent transmission to those who are the most vulnerable and so i i'd be a little concerned about the um the idea of of just letting everyone else go back to to life as normal I don't think we want to, to go back to lockdowns. Um, I think that that we can be smart about how we uh, manage this disease. But um, but if we just let transmission go haywire over the next few months until we have a, a vaccine that's widely distributed, uh, I worry that that's also going to increase the risk to uh, to those at greatest risk of uh, of death and um, and long term consequences.
2: But what about if if we have a situation where the vaccines being being doled out to first responders, healthcare workers, and elderly, you know, beginning in nursing homes, and then so on from there, over December, January? Let's hope that's let's, let's hope that the timeline is that short. <laughs> let's hope. <laughs> um, then then sh- doesn't it make some sense for the rest of us? You know, like for for example, I'm. 50 now, as of a couple of weeks ago. And I'm healthy. I don't have any of these underlying conditions. I don't feel threatened by this disease. I know that it it can potentially kill people. But for people in my age group, and my risk group, you have a 99.95% chance of surviving it. And so I, I don't know, like I would feel comfortable going out if, if, if maybe what's, what's wrong with having people like me, people like you out there wearing our masks even, uh, but not but but, we're opening the schools and we're opening the restaurants, or we're opening the bars at full capacity, and you know we wash our hands still. it's not like we're trying to get it, but what's wrong with doing that while the most vulnerable are getting vaccinated?
5: right, so I think this is a great question and and this is really uh, i think the the area of of debate and and I think that there are many reasonable um considerations and and perspectives on this. My personal perspective is that um if you are, are going to a bar or a restaurant that's at full capacity, even if you're you're wearing a mask, you're coming into contact with 50, 100 other people in, in uh, a time span of, of maybe an hour. Yes, you're wearing a mask. Yes, there's going to be some distance. But, but that's a lot of people. One of those people is going to have uh, an elderly parent living with them in their home, or is going to be working at a uh, at a long-term care facility, and and the risk to to let's say reasonably healthy 70 year olds is not zero, right? And so. It's it's one of these things where the more you're contacting other people, the the more there is a risk of transmission to someone who's then going to contact someone else. Um, if if everyone were living in in isolation and only had two or three people that they were contacting, this wouldn't be an issue. But we know that that's not how humans interact. And so, but, it's, but it's let about, me ask you about that.
2: So yeah. I get I get that point. So but. Isn't that responsibility? So I have a mom who's going to be eighty in July. So if my mom's staying with me, then I no question I shouldn't be doing that. I shouldn't be going to the bar and you know throwing caution to the wind. I would behave much much differently if she were in my apartment. So why can't the onus be on people as individuals? Like you know, if you're going to be exposed to somebody who's compromised in that way, but the rest of us who aren't, why can't we be out there? Like why we're already asking people to be responsible and. Support the community in the ways that make sense. Why can't we, especially focus in on people who live with a vulnerable person and say, "You, you're basically the same as an old person, so you got to behave accordingly," and the rest of you are good. So, first of
5: all, I, I guess I don't like the idea of um, putting the onus specifically on other people because then what happens is that those people uh, begin to feel like. Uh, you know, shamed for what they're doing. And, and often when people feel shamed for what they're doing, they, uh, they then find ways around it, or they don't, they won't go and get tested, etc. Also, we don't know everyone's individual situation. So let's say, you know, you are, um, you have your, your parents, uh, your eight-year-old parent living with you at home, but you also have a three year old that you have to support and you work in a restaurant, and if you lose your job, then um then you're gonna be out of uh, out of work and you're gonna be evicted from your from your home, right? And so everyone's situation is unique, and I worry about the idea of let's just put the onus on on all individuals um to to do the right thing because they may have very valid reasons for for not doing that, and it's not just that they are being careless and, and not, uh, compassionate with their parents.
2: Yeah. But the alternative is to put the onus on everyone to stay at home and, and avoid their work in a way that doesn't make sense either. You know, if I can go out, I'm, I'm able-bodied and I'm at very low risk and I can help contribute to keeping the economy open and spending my money at restaurants that need it. Why shouldn't I do that? Because there's right now we're damaging so many people who don't need to be damaged in order to protect this relatively small group. So we've gotten to the point where it's like people are starting to defy, defy the orders. They're, they're sick of it. They they bent the curve back in March. And now you're seeing open defiance. You know, we saw a restaurant here in Staten Island say, we're, we, we're not doing it. We're not closing. We're opening our, in, our in-house dining. And the sheriffs came and arrested them. And people cheered. They cheered the owners saying, go for it. You know, they're, they've kind of had it. So aren't we at the point now where we have to be realistic and say, all right, it's not ideal that if you live with an elderly person, you're going to have to make more sacrifices than somebody who doesn't. But we need an interim measure because the full lockdown situation or anything close to it is not going to be stomached by the American people.
5: Well, so I think I think that um, I'm in agreement that we need a middle ground. Right. So um I I would argue that that you're absolutely right we should not be going back to to full lockdowns and and the more we try to push full lockdowns on people the more as you say people are going to to openly defy that right but I also think that going completely in the opposite direction of um just let let everyone do what they want is is probably not the wisest decision either I think that there are some risks that people can can still tolerate, right? So for example, you mentioned wearing a mask as you as you go out, right? That that's something that I think many people can do. Maintaining some level of, of distance, I think again, is something that some people many people can do. Keeping um indoor gatherings to a, a limited capacity is is I think something that that people are in general able to do, especially for for just a few more months until we have a, a vaccine that can be widely distributed. You know, my sense is we've come this far. We've we've made it eight months into this um, pandemic already, and we're just a couple of months from the finish line. Why can't we continue to to do some of these sensible measures to to keep things at a at a reasonable level of transmission?
2: I did ask that question. You know, like with the end in sight. You know, can we? Why shouldn't we just lock down or something close to that for the next few months? And their point was, there it's they didn't use this word, but it's it's insensitive to the amount of damage that's being done to people as a result of the lockdown. That you know, adults are dying from cancer and from heart disease because they're not going into hospitals because they're afraid of this. That um, they they said there'll be. 30 million people who will be at risk of starvation this year 80 million children die of poverty worldwide in the united states skipping medical treatments uh, that will result result in higher death rates and cancer for women and men and so on they, they're basically saying it's fine to sit back and say oh sure we've got six more months but people are going to die as a result of these lockdowns and they need to be factored in
5: yeah, I, I I would uh I would counter first again by reemphasizing that no one is is talking about lockdowns again. I I don't think. I don't I think that putting people in full lockdown mode again for for 2 or 3 months is is not realistic. People will not accept it and and we know how to do things smarter than than just fully locking down. But it's I Pretty close I in LA think though. Pretty
2: close. Pretty close. Nice. <laughs> well,
5: um, you know, I don't, I don't live in LA, so I, I don't want to, uh, to speak to that, but I, I doubt that if, if that's where it's going, it's going to last for two months. You're going to see, as you've been describing lots of, of open defiance of, of that. Right. Um, mm-hmm. but I, I do think that, um, uh, to, to my mind, the, the ultimate goal here is to minimize the number of people who are getting, not only uh sick and dying of covid but also sick and dying of of all of these other conditions as um as the the previous interviewees have have pointed out i i think that those all all should count right and so we but i think we need to find again a, a bit of a middle ground where we we don't let um deaths from covid run rampant over the next um you know, the next two, three, four, five months until we we have a vaccine. Mm-hmm.
2: What do you think about schools? Because their their point was elementary, middle, high school, college—they should be open. The risk is incredibly low, and the damage to children in not being with their peers is high.
5: I personally would not, in most cases, disagree with that. I think that in most cases, it it the the harms done by um by keeping schools closed especially elementary and and middle schools closed is um is quite substantial right and and that may be a risk worth undertaking when we start to talk about um large high schools and and colleges uh i think the the trade offs are are something we we need to measure right because we're talking about uh, gatherings of, of hundreds of people um, who, uh, who in, in single lecture halls, for example, that may not be the smartest decision, and we may be able to find ways to to get education to to those people um, in ways that doesn't require the same large gathering, high risk setting. But in general, I, I think that opening schools should absolutely be on the table.
2: Mm. The um... Pushback they've gotten has been pretty severe. You know, I saw them come out with their declaration a couple months ago, and I thought, well, this is interesting. At least they're they're trying to find an alternative solution to a really tough problem. But predictably, they they just got attacked as hacks. I mean, these guys are they're very well respected Stanford and Oxford and Harvard. Um, in the same way, I've seen Scott Atlas just get completely dragged. I mean, just completely dragged in a way that's been devastating to his. Reputation. What do you think of these doctors, and what's what's happened? The nature of the pushback against them.
5: So, I um, again, I think I I would take a, a bit of a, a middle ground approach here. I I would caution against saying that just because someone is from Harvard or Stanford or Johns Hopkins that 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 makes them uh, uh, smart and um, and someone who who knows everything about a particular topic, but. I I do agree that that the pushback has been quite severe. Um and and I personally would like to see um the the scientific world be one in which open debate is encouraged rather than discouraged. Um and and so I I don't necessarily agree with everything that um that the authors of the Great Barrington Declaration have said. But I, I do feel that, um, people should be, um, able and, and willing to, to voice their opinions and to, to debate those opinions in a respectful fashion, right? Um, but I, I would like it to be about individual people's opinions, not just saying, Well, this person is from such and such university, therefore, they're an expert on the topic. And that goes Mm -hmm. for me, too, to be
2: honest. Mm -hmm. Right. Well, Johns Hopkins is (laughs) pretty good, too. Um, You know, to me, it's been such an obvious contrast with the, you know, the the lionization of Dr. Fauci, who on the left, you know, he can do no wrong. He's The guy's going to be People Magazine's man of the year, one of the people of the year. And, you know, I they, are, they had some issues with Dr. Fauci being too singularly focused on one avenue of harm and not any of the others. You know, this has been a debate we've been having in the country for eight, nine months now. Like, it can't all be about stopping the virus. There are other mental health and physical health consequences to the decisions we're implementing in fighting the virus that matter too.
5: And and I agree. I, I, I mean, I personally again am, am a, a fan of Dr. Fauci, and I think he's done a lot to to merit the uh, respect that he's been given. But but I don't think any one person's take on uh, on this virus, um, on this pandemic, is going to be perfect at all times. And and I I would push back against anyone who says that. Um, just because Dr. Fauci says something that, that we should follow that as well. I, I also agree that we need to be considering this as a multifaceted pandemic. This is not just about reducing transmission. It's about um, minimizing other harms, harms to, to mental health, harms to the economy, harms to, to people's well-being, and, and harms to, uh, to deaths from, from other conditions. I think in general, the best approach is uh, a middle ground where we do some reasonable things to uh, to stop transmission and, and, and keep it at a, at a manageable level, but without going so far that, um, that it's something that the majority of people can't tolerate.
2: On the question that you mentioned of, of testing, well, we were talking about shame and how we don't want shame attaching to individuals like you live with an elderly person and I saw you at the bar. Um, they were also raising that same issue because you know how it is. It's there still is weirdly some element of shame attached to getting the virus. It's weird. It's a damn virus. People get it like same <laughs> with the flu. We, we, we never before started blaming people or looking at them like they've gotten the plague. And their point was one of the points they raised was um, why does this have to be a part of public health reporting? What should we be able to get private tests done? and then trust individuals to make good choices to protect themselves and others.
5: So I, again, I agree. I do not think that that getting this virus, getting this disease should be a point of shame. Just like I also feel like um, being a, a public health worker in these hot spots, um, should not be a, a point of shame, which sometimes it has become as well. I, I feel like there's, there's a lot of shame going around and, and I, I wish we could reduce it on, on all sides. Um, I, I do think that we need, um, data on where, um, the virus is spreading, where, uh, disease levels are the highest so that we can plan our response. Uh, it, it does, I think, make sense to be more strict in places where there is more transmission and less strict as transmission goes down. But I don't think that we need to to have people's private in, in information attached to that. Right? So you don't need my like my individual name and address attached to my positive result if if I test positive for COVID. But it does help to know. What general area I'm in, right? And, and I think that again, we can find a, a middle ground where we we have enough data to plan a uh, an appropriately targeted response to to areas where the the virus is spreading without compromising people's individual information.
2: I was talking to a woman who had just gotten back from Israel. This is two months ago, and uh, she said they tested her, or that you know she arrived and she had to quarantine for two weeks. And by the way, just for folks at home, now the CDC is saying you can quarantine for just seven days if you test negative and you're asymptomatic um, seven days from the day you were exposed. So that's good. Uh, But anyway, so she had to quarantine for 14 days and she said she looked out the window and there was literally a little drone there checking on her to make sure she was still in the house. That's one person's eyewitness account. But I can tell you, I mean, if that kind of thing happened here, people would lose their minds. they don't want any more big tech or big government pushing them around. So let's talk about the vaccines, which I do think are miraculous. I'm very excited about these things. I feel like I would take one. Um, I don't know. I would take one. I'd be one of the first ones if they wanted me to be, because I don't, they don't seem to be telegraphing caution as much as they do with some other vaccines. You know, like they seem to be saying very little side effects, maybe a headache, maybe some malaise, um, but only in 15% of the people. And, you know, it's ninety five percent effective, so why wouldn't you? What do you think?
5: I, I mean, I agree. I I think that, that the data coming out on these vaccines so far has been very promising. Um, that uh efficacy seems very high. Side effect levels so far seem very low. Admittedly it's it's a relatively small sample size. Um and we still have to get these, these vaccines manufactured and distributed to the to the population, but but um I would absolutely take a vaccine.
2: So when do we get back to normal? Realistically, when, when are we going to be able to walk around without masks and go into fully stocked grocery stores and restaurants and bars and even Broadway theaters?
5: So again, I, I suspect that the return to, to normal is going to be a gradual one, right? I don't think that, that it's going to be that we wake up one day and suddenly everything is, is back to normal. And there are some things that probably are, are not not ever going to change because of the way that that we have have reacted to to this pandemic, um, but I, I think that um, as we get the uh, first, the highest risk individuals vaccinated, um, and then <clears throat> uh, larger swaths of the of the population, we're going to see the ability to to slowly scale back on on restrictions that have been placed on us. Uh, I'm I'm going to say that. Probably by um, by the spring, there are going to be um, many fewer uh, restrictions on our on our lives. And, and hopefully by mid to late next year, things are going to be close to um, to normal, you know, but, well, here, um, but here's I do the think it's going to be a those. gradual process.
2: Since they yeah. don't know whether the vaccine actually eliminates the disease within you or just stops you from getting any symptoms of a disease that is inside of you, a virus that's inside of you that you could still shed onto other people. that That's a bummer because if it gets rid of the virus, then I can take off my mask. Then I'm gonna r- run around and say, I, I have the immunity, I got the i got the shot. I, I can't spread it to you. I'm 95% immune, which is good enough for me. But if I could still be shedding it, people are going to tell me I got to keep the damn mask on forever until we truly have herd immunity in the country. Am I right?
5: Well, so I think that, that you're right to, to be cautious about this, right? Um, because we, we don't know, as you say, whether, whether vaccines are going to be, um, preventing, uh, disease or just, um, uh, or transmission or just the disease. Um, but I, um, I think that we will be able to watch the the numbers of cases and deaths that are occurring in this country, and as those go down, hopefully with the vaccine, uh, we'll be able to to manage our response accordingly. Right. So even if these these vaccines let let's say in an optimistic scenario, right, uh, we we might not know for a long time if they're able to block transmission, but in nine months from now, if if levels of, of COVID cases and deaths are very, very low, I don't think there's going to be a lot of um, uh, of push to to keep um, restaurants at, at limited capacity or, or you know, enforce mask wearing, you know? Mm-hmm. It, it's, it's going to depend on, on how much um, disease we're seeing in, in the country at any given time.
2: Do you think immunity is better, like herd immunity for the community, is it better if it is? not just from a vaccine, if there's a a greater proportion in there of people who have had it?
5: That is a question that, that I don't think we're going to be able to answer for a while. There are some diseases where having the infection is a, a better source of immunity. There are others where the vaccine actually does better than, than the, the original infection. And so, so I don't think that, that we're, we're gonna know that for this disease for a while. Um, and I think that we should, as you were suggesting, behave cautiously uh, until we see levels of um, disease, transmission, death, uh, really start to go down.
2: So another question, Moderna and Pfizer seem to have a different vaccine than AstraZeneca. they work their the first two work differently than the third one and it has to do with RNA. I don't know. My eyes glazed over. I just got they're different. <laughs> it sure. do you think so far that you, would you rather take one or the other? Do you think there's it's an important difference?
5: As of right now, um I I don't think that there is strong enough um data to suggest that that one vaccine is is much better than the other right so um it looks like these vaccines are effective we're not going to know their their long term effectiveness for for quite a while right um but short term they they all seem to be quite effective uh, the the differences have more to do with the the immune response um and also uh things like do they need to be kept at colder temperatures, et cetera? So distributional um, concerns, um, then than they do um, any anything that I think the average person should be concerned about in, in trying to choose between these vaccines. I think if if you have the opportunity to take a vaccine, I would take it.
2: Me too. I would too. I mean, I go by what my doctor says, and he'll, he'll tell me straight up, like, this is, this is not good. Don't be on the first line. He's like, we're good. He, he doesn't even think he wasn't anticipating even... Months ago, that there would be problems with this, and he's an infectious disease doctor. Um, There, some of the warnings about traveling over the holiday season are insane. (laughs) So, this is right before Thanksgiving, but the the messages stand. The fear factor stands. Uh, Salt Lake County Health Department warned: um, Thanksgiving leftovers won't taste as good if you're on a ventilator. (laughs) Okay, in Mississippi, the officials' uh, message reads as follows we we don't really want to see Mama at Thanksgiving and bury her by Christmas. Holy moly. so um, I don't know. I am going to travel over Christmas, but boy, they sure are trying to scare us into not doing that. What are your thoughts on it?
5: Yeah, I think my thoughts are are that that travel does pose a risk, um and I think it's important for people to be aware of that risk uh, I don't think that. Scare and, and shame tactics are, are generally the right way to get that uh, that message out. Uh, I would um, personally prefer to see messaging that that describes to people um, how how much of a risk it is to um, to to drive, how much of an additional risk it might be to to fly or take public transportation, um, but but without trying to to scare people. Uh, with all of these um, situations everyone's situation is unique. And I think the most important thing is to get the information out to people for people to recognize that there are risks associated with, with these activities, but not to, um, to, to scare people.
2: Mm -hmm. All right. Last question. Along the lines of what you're saying, people don't like to be ordered what to do by our government. It's not in the American DNA to, to behave like that. Although I think people have been pretty darn good during, during, the COVID period, uh, with obviously some exceptions, but overall, I think the public's been doing a great job. Um, so what about making these vaccines mandatory? There's, there's a big difference of opinion on whether that makes sense or not. I, I was just talking with the other guys about, does it make sense for school children when the vaccine has not been tested on school children? You know how they mandate that we get them vaccinated for other things so what what is your thought on children, and otherwise, should the vaccine be mandatory?
5: Yeah, and first of all, I'd like to echo your your comment that I think that the American public deserves some credit for what they've done. And, and I think again, this this goes back to the we've made it this far. we've We've done a lot, we've We've sacrificed a lot to get to this point. If we can make it just a few more months, hopefully things are going to get better with these vaccines. As far as making vaccines mandatory, I think that it is reasonable. For individual businesses or um, or venues or say nursing homes, etc., to to make this mandatory for their populations, I would be concerned about a broad like federal mandate that uh, that everyone gets this vaccine. Uh, I think that that school children are a, are a challenging situation because we we do mandate that that kids get a series of vaccines. And, and there's no reason to think that this vaccine should be very different from many of those other vaccines. Um, but as you say, I think we would want to to see enough data coming out that this is going to be safe and effective in, in school children before we could um, roll out that kind of a mandate. So I, I would say it's, it's reasonable for, for individual businesses, institutions to to required if they think that that's that's appropriate for for their population, I'd be concerned about uh, a broad government mandate that that everyone has to take
2: this vaccine. Art, right, I actually do have one more question, which is, as a doctor, <laughs> what do you think it says about our country, um, our determination, our work ethic, our brilliance that we we've done it? We appear to have done it to have come up with vaccines. To have come up with vaccines in record time, ninety-five um, percent effective, low rate of side effects. To me, as a layperson, I want to stand up and cheer these guys and just say bravo! It makes me makes me proud to be an American and it makes me proud of our companies and our work ethic and our just our our drive to get the important things done. But you're the doctor. How do you feel?
5: No, I I mean in general, I would agree. I think that. Um... That it's quite an accomplishment that that we've been able to get um, what appear to be safe and effective vaccines um, out um, uh, in in this amount of time. It's never been done before. Uh, I think that um, people in our country have given up a lot to get us to to where we are, and and we have saved you know hundreds of thousands of lives by doing what we have done. And I think the message is we're not quite there yet we still have a few more months to go but if we're able to keep this up um i think we we can look back on this with uh, with a measure of, of pride and accomplishment and i i would like to see more positive messaging like that as opposed to just the um the the shame and and fear sorts of uh messages that, that we've been talking about before i think mm-hmm.
2: people should be proud i'm feeling it uh, i think it's a it's <laughs> it is miraculous. I'm I'm proud of the country and I'm I'm proud of these scientists who really had to do nose to the grindstone to come up with this. I, what I what I read was that they they had it really soon in this whole process, but they've had to, you know, make sure it's safe for all these months thereafter. So apparently it wasn't as complicated a formula as as people feared initially. It's just they of course in something like this, they got to test it and retest it and make sure all the little mice lived after <laughs> after the dosages and and
5: people have really been working over time you know like people have been giving their all to to make this happen and and i i think they they deserve mention as heroes you know
2: yeah and the people who who have you know subjected themselves to the testing because it hasn't just been the little the little lab mice um anyway thank you so much for your perspective on it and uh for being part of the good fight thanks megan i appreciate it our thanks to all the doctors who helped us understand these issues today. I want to tell you that today's episode was brought to you in part by Bloomsy Box. Farm fresh flowers delivered right to your door. Go to BloomsyBox.com and enter code MK to get 15% off and free shipping right now. Now, before we go, I want to tell you that on our next episode of The Megan Kelly Show, we've got Dan Crenshaw. I am excited about this. I've actually never spoken to him Um and I i have a lot I want to go over with him. He's such a great thinker, and I love his sort of down-home take on a lot of issues. That is simple to understand in his general class. It's its not every politician you can say that about, but you certainly can about him. So that's on Wednesday. So to make sure that you don't miss it, go ahead and subscribe to the show right now. Don't waste time. Go to Box and then go subscribe to The Megyn Kelly Show. And uh, download the episodes, and then we'll pop right up in your inbox. And send me a review, post a thought or a comment on the show there. And actually, a lot of you have suggested that we have Dan Crenshaw on, which is one of the things that made us think about him. So please, guest suggestions are welcome or just thoughts on life are welcome, too. And obviously, five star reviews also welcome. Uh, in the meantime, have a great couple of days and we'll talk to you again on Wednesday. Thanks for listening to The Megan Kelly Show. No BS, no agenda and no fear. The Megan Kelly Show is a Devil May Care media production in collaboration with Red Seat Ventures.
0: Spectrum One is a big deal. You get Spectrum Internet with the most reliable internet speeds, free advanced Wi-Fi for enhanced security and privacy, and a free Spectrum Mobile Unlimited line with nationwide 5G included, all while saving big. For the big speed, big reliability, and big savings you want, get Spectrum One. Just $49.99 a month for 12 months. Visit Spectrum.com slash big deal for full details.